Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Tabi Soluhuku, Wisani Makubele and Tami Guza. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. International court member states meet in The Hague. UN political chief says Middle East peace talks are under threat and shopping mall collapse kills one person in South Africa. In economics, analysts express concerns over the current political situation in Mozambique and in sports news, Bafana Bafana beat world champions Spain. But up first, the news with Tabiso Lohuku. Mozambicans are casting their ballots in local elections today amid concerns that an upsurge in political violence will mar voting. Opposition party Renamo has denied allegations that it plans to disrupt the vote after months of deadly clashes between supporters and government forces. A spokesperson for the party, Fernando Mazanga, says Renamo is not a party of violence. Since late October, guerrillas from Renamo's military wing have been fighting a low-level insurgency against government forces in the central province of Sofala. The party has not registered for polls, saying the election laws must first be overhauled to ensure it has equal representation on election bodies to stop the ruling party stealing the vote. Over the past year, Renamo repeatedly vowed to stop elections going ahead. Mauritania's ruling party and Islamist opposition group have traded accusations of foul play as the campaign for the West African nation's legislative and local polls drew towards its conclusion. The governing union for the Republic, UPR, overwhelming favourites to win Saturday's elections, cast doubts over the founding of Tiwa Sol, a relatively new party fighting its first election. UPR National Campaign Director Mohamed Mahmoud Oud Javar says the party has much larger resources than his party. He has demanded that the Tawasol leaders set themselves apart from the Islamists who have committed a lot of damage in the Arab and Muslim world. Kenyan Foreign Affairs Secretary Amina Mohammed has faulted the United Nations Security Council for failing to listen to the African voices in its decision on the Kenyan International Criminal Court cases. Mohammed says the African Union will push for amendment of the Rome Mr. Chatters to provide for immunity from prosecution to the sitting heads of state and government when the group meets in The Hague this week. Sarah Kimani reports. The two leaders are determined to have the trials delayed, but on Friday, the 15-member Security Council stopped that bid. Seven members, including Russia and China, voted to have the trials deferred, but eight of them, including the U.S., U.K., 
and France abstained. In a statement, the Kenyan government stated this was a result that was unexpected, considering that consistently some of the members of the Security Council who hold veto powers had shown what the Kenyan government said was contempt for the African position. Through the Foreign Affairs Ministry, the statement described those who abstained as cowards. Libya's government has announced plans to remove militias from the capital and eventually integrate them into the security forces. This after a weekend of deadly clashes between militiamen and residents. According to the plan communicated to the General National Congress, as a first step, the authorities will try to determine exactly how many militias are operating in Tripoli, their sizes and the weapons they hold. Once that is accomplished, the militias would then be removed from the capital, disarmed, and their men integrated into the security forces, which has long been sought by government. At least one person has been killed and dozens are feared trapped under rubble after a soccer pitch-sized dissection of a shopping mall under construction collapsed in the South African town of Tongat in Guazunatal province. It is not yet clear what caused the three-story building to collapse, although local authorities are tried to hold construction a month ago. Shortly after the collapse of the structure, speculation began as to what could have caused the accident. Some people believe the rumbling of a goods train that had passed on the nearby railway line a short while before the incident led to the building's collapse, which buried an unknown number of workers under the rubble. A Human Rights Watch report released yesterday warns that Zimbabwe's capital Harare is at risk of repeating a cholera outbreak five years ago that killed over 4,200 people. The group says a long-running sanitation crisis in the city of 2 million means that drinking water is often taken from wells that are contaminated with sewage from broken pipes. Simon Muchemo. Human Rights Watch has urged the Zimbabwean government to improve the water and sanitation crisis that has affected the capital Harare, placing millions of residents at risk of contracting waterborne diseases. In a report released in Harare Tuesday, Human Rights Watch said the water crisis has led to over 4,000 people dying of cholera. And that's Channel Africa's reporter, Simon Muchemwa. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Tabiso. It's 7.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Kenya is banking on the International Criminal Court State Party's meeting in The Hague to pass an amendment that will secure immunity from prosecution for sitting heads of states. Kenya's Foreign Affairs Secretary Amina Mohamed says the amendment spearheaded by the African Union will secure the two-thirds majority needed. This latest move by Kenya and the AU comes less than a week after Kenya lost its bid to have crimes against humanity cases of its presidency and deputy deferred for a year during a UN Security Council meeting. The Assembly of State Parties opens today at The Hague. Sarah Kimani reports from Kenya. 
Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta managed to win for the third time the postponement of his trial. It is now set to begin in February next year. Ruto's began in September and resumes on Thursday. Last month, the African leaders met again in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and pledged to seek deferral through the UN Security Council. That move failed after eight countries, including France, Britain and the U.S., abstained from the deferral vote. Kenya is not giving up and has now moved to the ICC Assembly to seek an amendment that will shield sitting heads of state from prosecution. Desalgmi again. To safeguard the constitutional order, stability and integrity of member states, we have resolved that no serving AU heads of, head of state or government or anybody acting or, or entitled to act in such capacity shall be required to appear before any international court or tribunal during his term of office. But human rights lawyer John Jomue says the process is lengthy and may not affect the current trials facing President Kenyatta and his deputy. It is very difficult because the process of amending the Rome Statute is clearly defined in Article 121 of the Statute. That to get the issue on the agenda to begin with, one needs, first of all, uh, the, the, the Assembly of State Parties needs, needs to be notified at least three months before the meeting. It is not clear whether the notification was done three months before tomorrow's meeting. But even if it was done, to get the issue on the agenda once notification has been done, it requires a, a, a simple majority to be on the agenda. So it would require a, a majority of one, the 122 members of state to put it on the agenda. Once it's on the agenda, it would require a further vote of uh, two-thirds of the membership of the Rome Statute uh, to uh, accept the amendment and to deposit the instruments of amendment uh, with the uh, Assembly uh, of State Parties. Uh, and once they do that, then the amendments will take effect one year after two-thirds have accepted them. So assume it, even if it goes through Kenyatta and Ruto's cases will continue. This may not actually affect their cases. Absolutely. This will not affect their cases in any way, partly because it will take a minimum of one year for them to come into effect, um, and that's it at minimum. But secondly, it's highly unlikely that the statute can be amended with retroactive effect to affect cases that are already ongoing. Kenyatta is also seeking to have the cases thrown out, citing witness coaching by the prosecution. On Sunday, he expressed confidence that he would win the cases. They said it was impossible for some of us to stand before you. But yet here we are, before you and in the presence of God. They said that we would not be able to overcome the challenges that we had. Yet we overcame because of the power of God. They still say we will not be able to overcome the further challenges we have. To them I tell them, wait and see. That which is possible. On Monday, civil society organizations meeting in New York wrote to African heads of state, urging them to respect the rights of the victims of Kenya's 2007-2008 post-election violence who have waited five years to get that justice. Since coming into power, the leaders have lobbied the continent's leadership to support their bid to have the trial stopped. Mwe terms the move as wasteful. Um, the fact that they are using their positions in power uh, and using political processes such as the AU, uh, the UN Security Council, and now the Assembly of State Parties um, to 
to, in a sense, short-circuit the judicial process, uh, gives reasonable suspicion that they have something to hide. In my view, I think the best way to have done this, if they are sure they are innocent, would have been to go to court and prove their innocence in court. But more alarming, in my view, is the fact that Kenya is sending the message to the rest of the world that we want international rules to be bent in our favor. In a new poll released last week, 67% of Kenyans say they want Kenyatta to attend his trial at The Hague. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. The announcement of settlement advancement plans in the West Bank by the Israeli government cannot be reconciled with the goal of a negotiated two-state solution. That was the view expressed by the political head of the United Nations in a briefing to the Security Council who urged parties to refrain from actions that undermine the trust and spirit of the fragile peace talks. Under Secretary General Jeffrey Feltman was referring to an announcement on November the 13th to advance 24,000 Israeli units and housing tenders in a contentious area outside Jerusalem. Show and Price Peace reports. As critical peace talks hang in the balance, the UN has urged Israel to reverse its latest announcement. Jeffrey Feltman is the UN's Undersecretary General for Political Affairs. The Secretary General has reiterated the United Nations' unequivocal position that settlements are contrary to international law and an obstacle to peace. He expects the government of Israel to put a full, full stop to these plans. In protest over these developments, Palestinian negotiators submitted their resignations, now under consideration by President Abbas, who has nevertheless made it clear that this does not constitute a Palestinian departure from talks. He described a situation on the ground that remained tense with acts of violence and incitement on both sides of the conflict. Feltman expressed serious socio-economic concerns at the situation in Gaza, which also continues to face security challenges. On 31 October, Israeli forces conducted an an incursion some 200 meters into the Gaza Strip to demolish a recently discovered tunnel in Israel. The operation came under attack by Hamas militants and an explosive device detonated in the tunnel, injuring five Israeli soldiers. Subsequent shelling by by Israel killed four Hamas militants. Risks to Israeli-Palestinian negotiations ever-present. The risks they face are apparent to all of us. Yet a two-state solution remains the only way to fully realize the legitimate aspirations of both peoples for self-determination, peace, and security. The consequences of failure would be dire for Israelis and Palestinians alike. We thus continue to urge the parties to remain steadfast in their commitment to see this process through. Feltman tried to reassure council members that international engagement from the UN, the United States and others remains strong. And while a negotiated two-state solution appears to be the only way to realize the aspirations of both Israelis and Palestinians, the obstacles that keep emerging along the way leave many observers with diminishing confidence at the prospects for success. Sherman Bryce, New York.
At least one person was killed and dozens were feared trapped under rubble on Tuesday after a soccer pitch-sized section of a shopping mall under construction collapsed in the South African town of Tongat. It is not yet clear what caused the three-story building to collapse, although local authorities had tried to halt construction a month ago. Nongkululego Tlope has more. Shortly after the collapse of the structure, speculation began as to what could have caused the accident. Some people believe the rumbling of a goods train that had passed on the nearby railway line a short while before the incident led to the building's collapse, which buried an unknown number of workers under the rubble. Others took to social media to point fingers at the contractors. Although officials say the cause will only be known once an investigation is complete, it has emerged that contractors were indeed under investigation for allegedly floating building regulations. Its own deputy mayor, Nomvozo Shabalala, says they are shocked that there were people continuing construction work. She says they had went to court last month to halt construction after a certain process were bypassed. We will be investigating what is happening in terms of this building because as the municipality we have already taken this matter to court because we believe that this structure was not sanctioned properly by the municipality. So we have issued already to say to them, let them stop but to building in this area, but we were shocked to receive the news that it, the structure has collapsed. A witness, Fiona Muni, who lives a few meters from the site of collapsed mall, says almost the whole building was gone in a few seconds. She says it was traumatic hearing the screams of workers crying for help underneath the rubble. That the sound was like too many scaffolding was falling down at the same time and that's when I picked my eyes up and I looked out and together with the sound of the scaffolding it was just this concrete slab that was just coming down at the same time with the scaffolding. But the most traumatic thing I think for me in, in all of it was I was hearing the guys that were inside working screaming out for help, you know. This building was like falling and these guys were screaming and nothing could be done. It, 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 it got so bad that you, after a few seconds you couldn't actually see the building because of the dust and um, the smoke or whatever it is that, that rose from that concrete falling. Was Natal Health MEC Dr. Sbongsen Lomo was one of the officials who rushed to the scene. Lomo says it has been difficult to determine exactly how many people were on site when the building collapsed. The team that came here early in the afternoon to look at this, they are not uh, confirming that they found all the contractors who can indicate. So we are working on the numbers of those contractors that we found here. Uh, that is why, therefore, we want to give a benefit of that. They may as well be more than two people. The one contractor is identifying that there are two people that are missing from his list that we are working on. But for those that we are not sure of and other contractors that we did not meet, we may not be able to tell how many more. So we want to work on the premise that there may be more people. Although it's later seemed likely that some workers may have left the site before it's collapsed, search and rescue teams work throughout the night to find any missing people who might still be trapped beneath the concrete slabs and pillars. in Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine at 7.19 Central African time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The International Organization for Migration, IOM, in France has launched a reintegration project to assist 130 victims of trafficking who have opted for voluntary return from European Union countries to their countries of origin in Africa, Asia and South America. The coordinated approach for the reintegration of victims of trafficking Care Project aims to assess the needs of up to 260 victims of trafficking who are contemplating the option of assisted voluntary return. IOM spokesperson Jumbe Omari Jumbe elaborates. We are talking about the two-year project called CARE, Coordinated Approach for the Integration of Victims of Trafficking. These victims, the victims of trafficking will basically come from six European countries. Those are France, Portugal, Spain, Austria, and the United Kingdom, five European countries. What we are trying to do is this in the stages of trial. So we are trying to allocate about 130 or totally 260 victims of trafficking and those who are willing to return to their countries in Asia, Africa and Latin America voluntarily. And then we will assist them with departure, pre-departure services, departure and reintegration in their countries. Now, this project, as I said, will be for two years, and if it is successful, then there is a chance of extending it to other European countries and probably will be bigger than the initial project. Mr. Jumbe, it has been found that uh, too few trafficked uh, people receive what could be reasonably termed comprehensive care. And we have found that others decline assistance sometimes in the face of acute need because it does not meet their needs or mesh with their life situation after, after trafficking. Still others, like these individuals that will be receiving assistance, receive assistance in programs where the quality and scope are are inadequate, Mr. Jumbe. Issues of of discrimination, uh, maltreatment and and substandard care are also present there. Has the IOM considered such instances? Yes, uh, generally all victims of trafficking really experience the the things you have said, cruelty, abuse and and human treatment. Uh, Remember that trafficking in human uh, TIP is a big business actually. In fact, it is uh, according to the Office of the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, it actually it has a value of uh, $32 billion a year. So that is, uh, it is only second to the trade in drugs and weapons. So these people who are taken mainly, primarily for prostitution and labor exploitation suffer a lot. Now, when we really find, detect, because it is a long process, detect these people, first of all, we offer them assistance in terms of giving them accommodation, shelter, safe areas, and in there we treat them if they have any cases, medical issues, and uh, then the the program falls in. It is a long process. I mean, it it may take months before one is resettled in their country. And also, such projects do not come cheap. How will this one be sustained, Mr. Jumbe? Oh, yes. Uh, Why we are 
you know, initiating this project is because we have pledges of funds from sources such as uh, the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office, um, the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and uh, the Austrian Criminal Intelligence Service. It is in their interest to fund uh, such a program because uh, these are people who are um, in their countries illegally in many cases, and then uh, they are likely to be a burden to them and to uh, other generations. So it is in their interest to fund us for this. As I said, this is an initial project. If successful, and uh, I don't see any reason why it shouldn't be, because out of the 9,528, as Eurostar trafficking in human beings say they are, I think many of those would like to uh, to return to their countries rather than face the situation where they, they are in. By the way, the, the 9,528 the number of victims of trafficking, as the Eurostat said, is just a tip of an iceberg. Actually, according to the UN Office of Drugs and Crime, there are 140,000 victims of trafficking trapped in in, in a vicious cycle of violence in Europe, abuse and degradation across Europe, as I said, mainly in prostitution and followed by exploitation in labor. That was Jumbe Omari Jumbe, spokesperson of the International Organization for Migration, on the line from Geneva and Switzerland, talking to Channel Africa's Selina Dobon. The chairperson of the Kimberley Process, Ambassador Welilin Tlapo, says the Kimberley Process welcomes the decision by the European Union to lift sanctions it had imposed on Zimbabwe. Ntlapo was speaking at the Kimberley Process plenary meeting held in Johannesburg. He says this will not only benefit Zimbabwe, but the region at large. Murafe Tabane reports. The Kimberley process, which was established in South Africa, has brought together 54 participants representing 81 countries. They've converged here to look at ways of ensuring the Kimberley process certification scheme is taken forward. KP members account for approximately 99.8% of the global production of rough diamonds. The major purpose of the KP was to help stop trade in conflict diamonds and ensure that diamond purchases do not finance violence by rebel movements. Addressing delegates, the chairperson of the Kimberley Process, Ambassador Willilin Lapo, highlighted that significant progress has been achieved through the KP even assisting to end conflicts in other countries. The KP has thus, in its own way, and within its existing mandate, contributed to the resolution of these conflicts. This has been recognized by the United Nations General Assembly and the Security Council, which have endorsed the KP as a legitimate partner in contributing to conflict prevention, management, resolution, and development. Conflicts do, however, persist. One concern that was raised at the meeting by the Civil Society Coalition is that the Kimberley process definition of conflict diamonds is outdated and needs to be changed. It said that the current definition fails to acknowledge the link between diamonds and various human rights abuses. Shamiso Nzisi is with the Civil Society Coalition. It's about redefining conflict diamonds so that at least we capture cases of violence and conflict 
that are initiated by state or non-state actors. This is quite important because we have evidence of this in Angola. We had problems in Zimbabwe. But now what is important is for the KP to take upon itself and reconsolidate what has already been discussed, the different position papers that have been developed around redefining what we mean by conflict diamond. However, Nshapo says the matter is not easy to deal with and is receiving attention. When dealing with the definition, we have to recognize the role and limitations of the KP. The KP was created for a specific purpose. It was not created to, un- to end conflict or to end human rights abuses or to take retributive action against sovereign states. Other mechanisms existed until continue to exist in the international system for addressing some of these challenges. The United Nations Security Council has a primary mandate to address the maintenance of international peace and security. The Human Human Rights Council has a specific mandate also relating to human rights. The Minister of Mineral Resources, Susan Shabangu, who also addressed delegates, agrees with Nshapo. What we are emphasizing at South Africa is that we need to ensure whatever we do, it's not of duplication of work done by other uh, multilateral institutions. For now, we believe that uh, the Security Council, the issues raised as part of expanding, you find them in the Security Council definitions of conflict areas. So we think that expanding that beyond what we have identified, which we believe is still sufficient for us and it still works well within the perimeters of the statutes of the Kimberley process. Meanwhile, South Africa will hand over the chair of the Kimberley process to the People's Republic of China and says it is confident that the work that has been done thus far will be strengthened and taken forward. Morafi Dabani, Johannesburg. A Human Rights Watch report released yesterday has warned that Zimbabwe's capital, Harare, was at risk of repeating a cholera outbreak five years ago that killed over 4,200 people. The group said a long-running sanitation crisis in the city of 2 million meant drinking water was often taken from wells that were contaminated with sewage from broken pipes. Simon Muchema has more. Human Rights Watch has urged the Zimbabwean government to improve the water and sanitation crisis that has affected the capital, Harare, placing millions of residents at risk of contracting waterborne diseases. In a report released in Harare Tuesday, Human Rights Watch said the water crisis has led to over 4,000 people dying of cholera. 100,000 more have been sickened by the poor sanitation conditions that have allowed the epidemic to persist in Harare high-density suburbs. The report, entitled Troubled Water, Best Pipes, Contaminated Wells, and Open Defecation in Zimbabwe's Capital, describes how Harare's residents have little access to water, forcing people to drink water from shallow, unprotected wells that are contaminated with sewerage. During the launch of the 60-page report, Southern African Director at Human Rights Watch Tiseke Kasambala said Harare's water and sanitation system is broken and the government is not fixing it. Dewa Mavinga, a Harare-based researcher for Human Rights Watch, called for coordination with the Zimbabwean administration. The central government of Zimbabwe has not coordinated well with the municipal government in terms of resolving the water crisis. And as Human Rights Watch, we're calling for 
that coordination and effective implementation of the necessary legislative and other reforms to ensure the full enjoyment of the constitutionally guaranteed right to water. This has not happened. Mavinga added that corruption and poor management has plunged Zimbabwe into the current water and sanitation crisis. The Minister of Water, Environment and Climate has not taken the necessary steps to rehabilitate and upgrade the water system and the sewage network in Harare. So we're calling upon the Minister of Water to take the necessary steps to rehabilitate and upgrade this system. The population of Harare has been growing and ballooning since uh, uh, independence in 1980, but maintenance of the uh, water network and its upgrading has not taken place, uh, which points to uh, poor management. Despite getting in 144 million US dollar loan from the Chinese government to revamp the water and sanitation system in Harare, Dewa said the municipal government is failing to prioritize the resources available. Water is continued to bite the capital with Harare getting dry over the weekend. Dewa blamed the municipal of Harare and awarding hefty salaries to bosses at the expense of service delivery. He urged the municipality of Harare to stop water disconnections to defaulters. To the Harare City Council uh, and Harare Water, who are managing this uh, system, we urge that they should refrain from disconnecting people from piped uh, water supply, uh, simply for, for, for lack of payment they should prioritize resources to ensure water treatment chemicals are purchased consistently and in a transparent way. Harare City Council should develop a system to disseminate information, accurate information on water quality. We, we, we established that um, for a number of residents, they were not sure of the quality of the water that they were drinking. Those that have dug shallow wells, uh, those that are relying on borehole water, to what extent that water is safe, it has not been uh, uh, properly established. Harare Residence Trust Director Precious Shumba called for the protection of wetlands which have been allocated to Chinese companies. They must also protect wetlands. Wetlands have been left to, to, to be converted into residential areas allowing for the contamination of our water streams and ultimately the cost of treating water is multiplied. Harare requires, according to Harare Water, three water treatment chemicals, but they currently use nine water treatment chemicals, costing them around three million every month. That is unsustainable as long as they have a bloated Meanwhile, the Harare Municipal Authorities did not attend the launch. Southern Africa Director at Human Rights Watch Tiseke Kasambala said the absence of the city fathers during the launch is questionable. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Tabisolohuko standing by with the headlines.
Mozambicans cast their ballots in local elections today amid concerns that an upsurge in political violence will mar the voting. Kenyan Foreign Affairs Secretary Amina Mohamed lashes out at the United Nations Security Council for failing to listen to the African voice in its decision on the Kenyan International Criminal Court cases. And Libya's government plans to remove militias from the capital Tripoli and eventually integrate them into the security forces. Details at 8 Central African Time. Thank you, Tabiso. Green Cross International says World Toilet Day is a very significant milestone in the global calendar to raise awareness on the fact that more than 2.5 billion people lack access to toilet and basic hygiene and sanitation. To mark the day yesterday, Green Cross International launched new sanitation projects in Cote d'Ivoire and Argentina as part of its global campaign to address a sanitation crisis. For more on this, Channel Africa as Wandile Kalipa spoke to Paul Garwood, spokesperson for Green Cross International, on the line from Geneva. World Toilet Day is a very significant day. It's a key milestone in the global calendar to raise awareness on the fact that more than 2.5 billion people lack access to toilet and basic hygiene and sanitation. Uh, the fact that so many people lack access to this basic human right of access to sanitation leads to hundreds of thousands of people falling ill and many dying every year. We hear that 800,000 children die annually from diarrhea, easily preventable disease, but because of a lack of access to appropriate sanitation and clean water, so many children die needlessly. Now, looking at the work that Green Cross International is doing, what is it that has been done in order to be able to assist with regards to this access to proper sanitation by people in developing countries in particular? So Green Cross International is you know, one of you know, thousands of non-governmental organizations working to address this issue around the world. So the, the part we play as part of this global effort is through our Smart Water for Green Schools initiative. And what this program does is work in countries like Ghana, Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, as well as Bolivia, Ukraine and China, and several others, Kenya, to implement and install safe water and safe sanitation facilities in communities. And when it comes to sanitation, this involves us helping build new latrines, educating providing school curriculum materials to educate children on hygiene and sanitation and the reasons why to practice good hygiene and sanitation. So we play a role, we're a partner, you know, in the global effort to try and ensure that all people have access to this basic right, this access to sanitation. How has some of your programs managed to improve the situations of the particular people living in those areas? We know that in these areas where we work, uh, communities, several dozen communities in Ghana, communities in Bolivia, Kenya, we know where we're working, the communities there, and particularly our, our target is on schools, they did not have access to 
reliable, sustainable, safe water supply as well as toilets in their facilities. So by we've seen in Ghana, for example, by both implementing, installing water systems in schools and providing girls' and boys' toilets, it's led to an increase in school attendance, particularly by girls who do not have to walk long distances both to collect water as well as they have access to toilets just for girls and for females, which of course is much more convenient and appropriate for them. And by having these facilities available in schools, it both provides the foundations for and the opportunities for better health, as well it makes it easier and more attractive for children to go to school and to develop and learn and be educated. Looking at this year's uh, report on this uh, World Toilet Day, as it is uh, themed, uh, we can't uh, wait. What could be said about it? Well, I think it's a perfect campaign and it really gets to the nub of the crisis here. We cannot wait anymore in a world where we're talking about sustainable development and human-centered development. The health of people is central to this and if 2.5 billion people around the world are lacking access to toilets and therefore are at risk from waterborne diseases, issues such as development, sustainability cannot wait any longer until people such as those living in many parts of the world, like in Africa and parts of South America and in Asia, get access to safe sanitation, to appropriate sanitation. Without appropriate sanitation facilities, without safe access to water, many, many communities are going to be prevented from developing sustainably, appropriately in coming years and decades. That was Paul Garwood, spokesperson for Green Cross International, on the line from Geneva, talking to Wantile Kalipa. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 7.41 Central African time, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa welcomed the findings of the recently released NLALT GFK Nation Brands Index results. The study is conducted annually in 50 major developed and developing countries that play important and diverse roles in international relations, trade and the flow of business, cultural and tourism activities. The 2013 study has found that South Africa outperforms its counterparts in Africa and the Middle East in terms of reputation. To find out more on this, Channel Africa's Tutongobeni interviewed Dr. Petrus de Kok, Research Manager at Brand South Africa. You know, the Nation Brand Index is an annual study, as you indicated. It studies the reputation of 50 countries globally, of which South Africa is, is one of them. And now for the second year in a row, the country ranks 36th out of that group of 50 nations. Now, the Nation Brand Index is quite an important instrument for us because it gives us insight into how are people in the international markets perceiving South Africa on specific issues. And so South Africa has ranked 36, as you have said, out of 50 countries. Now, what are some of the things that South Africa have been doing well to be at 36 compared to 50 or 49? Mm -hmm. You know, I think the main thing in the Nation Brand Index, what it measures is 
issues like how are South Africa's exports perceived, how are our people perceived, our culture, our immigration and investment environment. So it gives us a lot of insight into those elements. So mainly, as I indicated, you know, our reputation stays stable at 36. And that's quite important because it means that in the eye of the group of people where the study is conducted, that South Africa basically has a kind of a stable outlook in terms of our reputation and how we are perceived. However, as an organization, Brand South Africa, we would always love to move further up the rankings there and to improve our reputation score because what that strong reputation basically means that you are recognized as a reliable, stable, reputable brand, and that brings more tourists, it brings more investment because that's what people base decision on. It's on what's your reputation, what's your standing and the outlook for the country. Over the years with the study, have we seen a lot of people coming to South Africa with the rankings resulting from the research and what people perceive South Africa to be like? You know, it plays a role, you know, and but typically an international investor or somebody in business would look at a whole range of indicators, you know, of which a reputation indicator is one of them. So it's a mixture, you know, in business of looking at specific sector indicators, but then in the case of the reputation index, it's at a much higher level to give an overall view of what is the status of the perceptions on the country and then also what are some of the challenges that countries may face in terms of reputation. And I think given conditions in the global economy, in recent years and also conditions in South Africa's economy is actually quite strong for us, you know, to maintain that reputation because if we look at last year, for example, Western Europe, North America, as well as this year had a bit of a reputation score declines as a result of some insecurity on the economic outlook of those countries. So I think all in all for South Africa as a developing country, we are very strong in the African environment. We come first of all the African countries in the index. Among the BRICS, we also perform quite well in terms of reputation. So there's a lot for us to work with and to build on in future. What are the chances of us ascending to the top 20 spot or even higher? You know, a reputation is something that's not made by what you say. A reputation is made by, by actions. So let's take an uh, example of an, an individual. You know, if, if somebody just keeps on talking, I plan to do this, I plan to do that, you know, then sometimes people may start thinking, okay, hang on, you know, is this real? But when that person starts showing, okay, I plan, but this is my step I'm taking to actually make it a reality, that is when people's perceptions start changing. That was Dr. Petros de Kock, Research Manager at Brand South Africa, on the line to Tutong Gubeni. We Sani Makubela standing by with the headline with our economics update. Thanks, Lulu. Good morning. An international meeting to discuss rules curbing the sale of conflict diamonds has begun with a call for the United States to lift sanctions on Zimbabwean mines. Representatives of 81 countries taking part in the Kimberley process meeting in Johannesburg yesterday heard a plea from the South African chairperson that Washington should follow the European Union's lead and allow Zimbabwe's return to fully-fledged international trade. The EU in September lifted restrictions against the Zimbabwe Mining Development Corporation, the firm that controls Marange and one of the world's largest diamond fields. South Africa's Willy Lenthapo, who currently chairs the rotating presidency of the Diamond Watchdog, congratulated the EU for its decision to lift sanctions on Zimbabwe. 
would like to congratulate the European Union for the, its decision to lift sanctions on Zimbabwe. We hope that those who continue to maintain such sanctions would also be able to lift them because the lifting of these sanctions would assist Zimbabwe to gain stability and prosperity once again, which will also benefit the wider region, a better Africa, in a safe and secure world. The pending European Union ban decision on South Africa's citrus imports has caused jitters in the citrus industry, especially among emerging farmers. The move follows the interception of 35 citrus shipments from South Africa to the EU bloc that were contaminated with a fungal black spot. The EU is expected to take a decision on this matter by the end of this month. The South African Citrus Growers Association's Peter Norke. We are positive that we will find a diplomatic uh, solution. I almost want to say that we, it's too big to fail, but we've seen that Europe uh, don't care about that as much. They've uh, banned Brazil uh, uh, two years ago. So uh, we, we're just going to do everything that we can uh, together with the government and DAF to assist us in the diplomatic uh, solution. Mozambican economic analyst Rashid D'Souza says the current political situation in the country is becoming a worrying factor to small investors. D'Souza says investors are closely monitoring the situation. He says armed clashes between Renamo and Frelimo in the central and northern parts have forced some companies to consider closing or scaling down. He has urged both parties to find common ground. During the second quarter of 2011, Mozambique resumed exporting coal for the first time in 20 years. Economic experts say structural problems, including poor public finance management and underdeveloped legal frameworks, undermine growth. More than half of the 24 million population still live on less than $1 a day. East Africa community member states have taken steps to further develop a shared financial sector system that could make it possible to clear bank checks and issue bonds, shares and insurance products across the region. The initiative could be live in the next four years. The shared financial system will enable investors to transact across all five markets without restrictions. Central banks in the five member states have begun integrating their systems to reduce the time it takes to settle transactions across East Africa. The International Finance Corporation is helping the EAC to harmonize laws regulating the capital markets while the Swedish government is funding the development of a regional bonds market. South Africa's Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis has called on consumers to buy local goods this festive season to boost the struggling manufacturing sector. The newly launched Buy South African campaign is a partnership between the department, Proudly South African, and the manufacturing sector. Davis elaborates. South African manufacturers are known for manufacturing goods of high quality at a good price, and we want to encourage people to buy those products. Uh, in preference to uh, the uh, alternatives that are available. Because this has significance in terms of job creation, revenue, service delivery, and all of the things that we need to do to ensure that South African consumers can continue to buy. And in the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 10.14 South African rands, at 8.47 Botswana pullers, and at 5.52 Zambian quaches. It's also trading at 0.62 to the British pound and 0.74 to the euro. 
Gold is trading at $1,274 and platinum at $1,410 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $107.40 a barrel. And that's the economics news. Africa Rise and Shine continues. Thank you, Isani. Tami Kuza. Yep. It's been. It, it was a great day yesterday. It was uh, action-packed football. Ghana was playing against uh, Egypt, and they've won. Burkina Faso was up against Algeria. The friendly internationals, Bafana against Spain. Everything. It was absolutely phenomenal and fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Give us an update, please. Thanks for joining us once again. Ghana and Algeria became the last two teams to confirm their qualification for next year's World Cup in Brazil. This despite Ghana losing 2-1 to Egypt in Cairo last night. Kwesi Apia's side wrapped up the 7-3 aggregate victory from both legs of the to secure a passage to the finals after the Black Stars' 6-1 first leg win in Kumasi last month. The Black Stars thus secure a passage to the third straight World Cup finals. On the other side, Algeria needed a large slice of good fortune to defeat Burkina Faso 1-0 and their World Cup playoff in Blida to reach the 2014 finals in Brazil on the away goals rule. The sad news is that around 40 Algerian football fans were injured as a packed house of 40,000 awaited the World Cup match with Burkina Faso that was played at the Blida's Mustafa Tashia Stadium, which is 50 kilometers south of Algiers. In our back home, South Africa's Bafana Bafana have scored a massive coup with a 1-0 victory over world and European champion Spain at the FNP Stadium last night. Bernard Parker scored the only goal of the game early in the second half. Lebohang Tube reports. Spain was back at the scene of the 2010 World Cup title triumph, but this time they suffered a surprise defeat by Bafana Bafana. Spain coach Vicente Del Bosque fielded a near full-strength side with many of their winners from three years ago on show. It became Gordon Higgins' first massive win since he took over the reins as Bafana Bafana coach. It was more of a polished performance from the South Africans as they went toe-to-toe with the world number one ranked team, a result that Bafana Bafana coach Higgins can be proud of. Although Bafana Bafana lacked composure in front of the goals, coach God Igerson believes that he had a good game plan and that technically his team was very sharp. We knew exactly how they were going to play. We knew exactly when they get wide, they're not going to get crosses and they're going to start playing around the back again. And they, they like to try and keep the ball and they don't like to get crosses in too many. I think if we analyze the game, they got into great positions to punish us behind us, but they never got the ball crossed in. And we kept, we kept playing, we kept them in front of us all the time. And now in cricket, the South African cricket team, the Proteas, will be taking a ruthless approach in the upcoming two-match T20 international series against Pakistan. Proteas and Pakistan square up again in a T20 internationals. The first match will take place at the Wanderers Stadium this evening. Natli Chamanos looks ahead. It's now time for the second half of the T20 series between South Africa and Pakistan. This time around, it will be in South Africa. And from Pakistan's point of view, they'll be very disappointed with their performances in the limited overs formats in the UAE. They lost the ODI series 4-1 and lost the T20 series 2-0, despite being favourites. 
The problem that they have now is a couple of injuries have hit the team and it's certainly going to make a difference to their squad. Mohamed Yafan has been ruled out of the tour completely and Shoaib Malik and Abdul Razak are both returning home after a couple of injuries have hit them. There will be no replacement though for Malik and Razak as they've now reduced the squad to just 15. For South Africa, they don't have any such worries. They've got an unchanged side that won the T20 series in the UAE, which gives them an opportunity to experiment with a couple of options. The match starts at 6 o'clock South African time and will be played at the Bullring, the Wanderers. And now in rugby, South African Springbok flanker Francois Lowe has been cleared of a serious injury and is expected to start against France in Paris on Saturday. Lowe was stretched from the field in an air brace from four minutes before the end of South Africa's 28-0 win over Scotland in Edinburgh on Saturday. Lowe underwent further tests and visited a specialist who cleared him of serious injury. Team doctor Craig Roberts says that the bath flank will be managed carefully at the training this week but he's likely to join Willem Alberts and Duan Fermoulin in the starting big draw against France. Alberts is still nursing a sore shoulder from the Wales game two weeks ago, but he's expected to play at the Stade de France on Saturday, and the kickoff of that match is at 10 p.m. Central African time. The Springboks will name their squad later today. Finally, with hockey, the South African men's hockey team beat Egypt 6-1 in an Africa Cup of Nations hockey match in Nairobi in Kenya yesterday. South Africa scored three goals and three penalty corners, two to Captain Austin Smith and one to Lloyd Norris Jones during the encounter. They have now recorded two wins from both of their matches, having beaten Ghana 6-2 on Monday and are likely to meet Egypt again in the final on Saturday in a match which the winner book a ticket to the 2014 Hockey World Cup in The Hague in Netherlands in May. Meanwhile, the South African women's team were held to a one-all draw for the first time by Ghana. And that's the end of our sport. Back to Lulu Kabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. International court member states meet in The Hague. UN political chief says Middle East peace talks are under threat. And shopping mall collapse kills one person in South Africa. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. From myself, Lulu Gabu, and the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or write to us at Africa Rise and Shine, Channel Africa, PO Box 91313, Auckland Park, Johannesburg, 2006, or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news and another hour of Africa Rise and Shine on the frequency. 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to far west africa is Yvonne Chaka Chaka with Motherland.